Today on The Matt Wall Show, we will discuss uh, a story of an innocent family being ripped apart by Child Protective Services. Uh, apparently, you have no rights and no presumption of innocence when the bureaucrats at CPS come, come, come knocking. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Also, President Trump got himself into hot water when he called Robert E. Lee a great general. Well, Robert E. Lee was a great general, and it's ridiculous that we aren't allowed to say that anymore. So we'll talk about that and other topics today on The Matt Wall Show. Well, I hope you all had a great uh, weekend. We, we had a pretty good weekend. Well, I'll tell you one thing that we did um, over the weekend. My kids had two more Easter egg hunts to attend. Actually, the second one was rained out, so they postponed it um, for, for next weekend. So we're going to stretch this into a third week. They had two or three Easter egg hunts leading up to Easter. And it's this whole, this is what I was complaining to my wife about. It's that it, it, it seems like our kids somehow celebrate every holiday numerous times. Like for, for Halloween, they go trick-or-treating probably 12 or 13 different times. They have 12 or 13 different trick-or-treating events. Um, Christmas, they have about five or six different Christmas get-togethers where they get presents. Somehow they celebrate their birthdays multiple times between all the different family members and friends and everything. Um, is it just my kids who do this, or is this is this a, is this the thing now that all kids do, where you get where it's every holiday becomes a two or three month long ordeal? Uh, when I was a kid, we had one celebration for each holiday if we were lucky, and we definitely only went Easter egg hunting once, and we didn't get candy in the Easter eggs either. There were little slips of paper with chores we had to do. That's what was in our Easter eggs, and we did our Easter egg hunt in the snow in January in our bare feet, and we liked it, damn it. Kids these days, I'll tell you what, very spoiled. Um, all right, there's a lot to talk about uh, today, and uh, before we get to that, speaking of, of kids, um, I want to mention one quick thing about education. You know, this year, nearly $70 billion of taxpayer money will be spent on public education, yet a new report finds that just two in five American students will actually be ready for college uh, by the time they graduate. So that's a lot of money that it would seem is being wasted. Many people, many of you, I'm sure, are, are, are searching for a school with traditional values that helps students to develop strong foundations in math and science and English and American history, um, but that also teaches kids how to think, how to think critically rather than just what to think. And if that's what you're searching for, then your search is over. Freedom Project Academy is an accredited online school built on Judeo-Christian values and classical curriculum for students from kindergarten all the way through high school. Um, with Freedom Project Academy, we're talking about a complete interactive educational experience where students attend live classes uh, online with other students from across the country. Uh, Freedom Project Academy uh, pro provides live and recorded lessons, homework, tests, tutoring, grades, transcripts. You get all of that. And there are a lot of other advantages, too, by the way, to being online. Like you don't, you don't have to worry about eating in the cafeteria if you're a kid. So you avoid the politics of who do you sit with, who don't you sit with. You don't, get, you don't have to deal with those little square pizzas with cardboard crust and ketchup for sauce with the cheese-flavored styrofoam on top. So that's, that's good, too. Uh, go to freedomforschool.com and request your free information packet today. That's freedomforschool.com. And don't forget to subscribe to their weekly podcast, The Dr. Duke Show, available on iTunes and more. Take back control of your kids' education. Freedomforschool.com, freedomforschool.com, freedomforschool.com.
All right. Another horrific shooting over the weekend, not just not just another shooting, but um, another synagogue shooting specifically. There were multiple injuries, one fatality. Um, that victim, Lori Kay, the, the, the victim who died, uh, sadly, is a, a hero who, who jumped in front of the bullet to save her rabbi, apparently. Truly a courageous woman. As I, you know, we were talking about something last week. I don't remember what it was, but I made the point that Words like hero and courageous are way overused th- these days, and tragically so, because they blunt the impact of those words when it comes time to actually use them appropriately, um, like in, in this case. And she wasn't the only hero, by the way. Another man chased uh, the gunman out of the, the synagogue after his gun jammed, and then another man came in, a, a off-duty Border Patrol agent came in and, and fired on the, the vehicle to try to, um, you know, take out its tires before he drove away and got away. So, I mean, this is um, this is apparently a synagogue that was attended by some incredibly courageous people, um, and it's because of their courage that the deranged coward who carried out this attack did not succeed in inflicting the kind of damage that he wanted. Obviously, one lost life is a terrible tragedy, but I think the heroes in this case prevented the tragedy from multiplying. Um, and those are the people that I would prefer to talk about. You know, As for the anti-Semitic scumbag coward who did this, well, what can you really say about him other than what I just said? Anti-Semitic scumbag coward. Um, he doesn't deserve to have anything else said about him, really. And anti-Semitism is a scourge that infects both the right and the left. It is a, a plague, and it needs to be eradicated. And the plague, as we have seen, goes beyond anti-Semitism. I mean, just in the just in the last couple of months, we've we've seen attacks on synagogues, we've seen attacks on mosques, we've seen attacks on churches, um, many people dead, and for what? You know, these were all people who were simply going to worship, going to practice their religion in peace. Um, But it seems that increasingly there are those who don't want you to practice your religion in peace, no matter what your religion is. And the people in that camp are numerous and their numbers are growing. And so pray for our world, folks. Um, It is we are heading into dark places. We are already in dark places. I'm afraid. All right, the website, uh, I wrote about this on Friday, and I wanted, to, I wanted to mention it here because it is a horrifying and harrowing, and harrowing story that I think um, need, needs to be discussed. The website Reason, Reason.com, had a report about the months-long saga of corruption and abuse that a family suffered at the hands of uh, law enforcement and child protective services in New Mexico. And it's if you go over to Reason.com, you could read the whole article. I would really recommend it. I'll, I'll, I will briefly summarize it, but it's worth reading the whole thing and getting all the details, which I don't have time to provide all of them right now. Uh, so the, the Lowther family... Uh, the Lowther family of New Mexico, they found themselves in the in the crosshairs of Child Protective Services after a teacher at the four-year-old daughter's school claimed that the girl reported that she'd been sexually abused by her father and also her seven-year-old brother. Um, now, fast-forwarding to the to the end of the story here for a minute, 
the district attorney would eventually decline to move forward with the case because uh, there was no evidence whatsoever, and the child's story kept changing wildly and included a number of obviously fantastical details, um, and the father passed multiple uh, polygraph tests, and it's likely that the girl was really just describing her father helping her on the toilet, helping her wipe or something on the toilet, which is something that every parent has done for their three- and four-year-old kids many times. Um, so that's, that's what would happen at the end. Um, but in between the initial report uh, from the girl, if we can call it that, if we can call it a report, you know, um, and not just a, a story, but in between that and the DA's decision to drop the whole matter, the Lowther family was, was ripped apart. Uh, the children were put in foster care. The, fi- the father was fired from his job. He was labeled a child rapist by the media. His picture and name were plastered on the, plastered on the front pages of the local newspapers. Um, the young girl was subjected to uh, lengthy uh, and incredibly invasive exams. Uh, the 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 son, the seven year old son, was was also uh, interrogated. Uh, the family was forced to shell out three hundred thousand dollars in legal expenses, and the accused father and his wife were summarily stripped of all parental rights. Not to mention their Fourth Amendment rights and their Sixth Amendment and Eighth Amendment. Basically, all of their rights went out the window for many months. Um based on something that the DA would eventually say is completely baseless. Now, the most frightening aspect of the story is the malicious and underhanded, yet unfortunately familiar manner with which the Child Protective Services and law enforcement approached this case. Um, They basically decided from the outset that Adam Lowther, the, the father, must be guilty. Because who's ever heard of a four-year-old child making up a story, right? I mean, like that. I guess that never happens. Um, and so they treated him like a child-raping felon from the very beginning. Uh, these agencies were clearly interested in establishing guilt by whatever means necessary, not ascertaining the objective truth, but just finding guilt. That's what they wanted to do. And they had the advantage of a system that automatically turns entire families into wards of the state as soon as someone in government decides that someone in that family may have done something bad. Um, So after initially being contacted by the school, the police forced their way into the family's home without a warrant. They forbade the mother, Jessica, from even speaking to her children to explain what was going on. Eventually, the kids would end up in foster care. They were briefly returned to Jessica's custody. Now, the father was was not allowed to see his kids at all for several months. He was sent off somewhere uh, across town. But she, uh, she, the, the mother also had custody removed. Um, briefly, she had custody restored, but she had to have her parents move in with her to be safety monitors uh, to make sure that she wasn't abusing her children. But then the children were removed from her mother's custody again, once Child Protective Services got wind of the fact that the safety monitors, which would be the mother's parents, were apparently sympathetic to Adam and didn't believe that he was guilty. And so for some reason that meant that they were no longer fit uh, safety monitors. You know, it, as I said, go, go read the whole report. I, I, 
as I was reading it, and often when I read these stories about these horror stories about child protective services, I think about um, the book, uh, the Gulag Archipelago, which I've mentioned before, Solzhenitsyn's magnum opus about the Soviet labor camp system. And uh, as I was reading this report, I, I, I kept thinking about the Gulag Archipelago because there are some real uncomfortable resemblances there where, you know, innocent, and their story is not unique. This, this happens a lot, where you've got innocent people, innocent mothers and fathers, uh, who discover that they basically have no rights and no presumption of innocence once the folks at, you know, in this government agency decide to come knocking. Um, it was the same thing in the, in, 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 in the Soviet Union, where if the government decided that you were guilty of something, you had no rights, and they were going to prove that you were guilty. One way or another, they were going to find evidence. They, they weren't looking for any indication of innocence. They'd already decided you were guilty, and now it's just a matter of building a case. Um, and anything that doesn't uh, fit with the case they're building, they just throw, throw, throw it out, you know, chuck it to the side. Um, this is the kind of nightmare scenario that every parent dreads. And it, it could happen to any one of us. If you're a parent, it could happen to you. I mean, with the way the system is set up, if your child goes to school uh, with a story that she made up in her head or repeats something that she heard from her friend or for whatever other reason says something that accidentally implicates you as an abuser or worse, then you could lose your kids just based on that. There doesn't have to be any other evidence. In the case of this family and these parents, there was no other evidence. None. They found nothing. But they, their kids still ended up in foster care. I mean, think about that. You know, I think about with my own kids. My, um, my five-year-old daughter, she, she likes to, you know, as, as five-year-old kids will often do, she likes to make up stories, uh, especially about her brother, to try to get him in trouble. So she will, she will erroneously claim that her brother, her twin brother, punched her in the head. Um, and they do smack each other and stuff, like as, as siblings do, especially twins. But um, I've never seen my son punch anyone, like closed fists, just wallops. I've, I've never seen him do that, uh, least of all to his sister. And, but she'll, you know, she just says that sometimes. And so I have to try to work with her and that you don't, if it's not true, you don't say it. But what if my daughter uh, went into, you know, went out in public one day and uh, decided to tell a slightly different version of that story? And instead of saying, my brother punched me in the head, she said, daddy punched me in the head. Um, that would be enough, it seems, to land my kids in foster care. Just, just that sentence, if my daughter just got it into her, into her head to say that, uh, that could be it, right? That's all. That's it. And every parent is in this boat. The only thing keeping our parental, our parental rights intact is that our kids haven't made up the wrong kind of story and told it to the wrong sort of person, which is another way of saying we don't have parental rights. If you can lose them in an instant with no evidence, uh, then what does it even mean to say that we have parental rights in the first place? If they can be revoked by bureaucrats at the Child Protective Services, people who are unelected, who are apparently constrained by nothing, if they can come in and just take your kids, 
then what does it even mean to say that you have parental rights? Um, now, I believe, of course, that actual allegations of abuse have to be investigated. And, and certainly we can't ignore a child who claims that they've been abused. Um, and some parents really are guilty of these kinds of horrible crimes. And those parents need to be locked in prison. Um, but due process can't go out the window. Unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats from social services cannot be empowered to act as prosecutor, judge, and jury. You know, the rights of the parents have to be preserved and respected at all times until it has been proven, proven that they can no longer be trusted with those rights. And then the rights will be revoked. Um, but that's not how these cases play out. Here's the thing. If, if agents of the government are looking into accusations against you, any kind of accusation, and they're assuming your guilt from the beginning, and therefore looking only for proof um, that you did whatever they already assumed you did, rather than looking for facts on both sides, then you're screwed. That's tyranny. You're, there's going to be tyranny in a, in, a, in a situation like that. Tyranny always happens when the people investigating an accusation assume the guilt of the accused beforehand. And that's why presumption of innocence is the, the absolute bedrock of our justice system, is the presumption of innocence. It, it, our, our philosophy in this country has always been, in principle, at least in theory, has always been that it's better to let a guilty person go free because they were afforded the presumption of innocence than to punish an innocent person. To punish an innocent person is the greatest miscarriage of ju justice. It is the greatest travesty. Um, imaginable. And so that has to be avoided at all costs. But child protective services, they don't operate that way. With them, the assumption at the beginning is guilt. And then you have to dig yourself out of that hole. You have to prove your own innocence beyond a shadow of a doubt. And if you can't do that, then you're, you're through. You're finished. Um, and the thing is, you know, the problem is, if you have a child who's, who's telling stories, who's making things up, um, and if you interview them with the intent of actually figuring out what really happened, then oftentimes you'll be able to tell that something is amiss here and clearly this, it didn't happen how they say it happened. Um, I, I can do that with my own kids, right? If they're tattletaling on each other, most of the time I just, I don't, I'm not going to get in between it and play, uh, and, you know, play the, uh, the lawyer uh, trying to sort it out, especially when it's just frivolous stuff. But if one of my kids tells on another, on their sibling, and makes a more serious accusation uh, that they did something really unsafe or dangerous, harmful or whatever, then most of the time, if I, if I sit them both down and talk to them, I can tell within like 30 seconds if this thing actually happened or something like it actually happened. Because they're, they're, they're little kids, you know, they're not masterminds. And usually you can tell. Uh, but if you interview them just to get more information to prove guilt, because you've already assumed the guilt, then you're going to ask leading questions and you're basically going to coax the child into making up more stuff. And I think that happens in a lot of these situations. 
Um, and with kids, as I've, as I've said before in other contexts, little kids who are, you know, four or five years old, um, they don't really have any concept of truth versus fiction, of honesty versus deception. They don't understand the distinction. Um, they, they really don't understand the difference between fake and real. Uh, just conceptually, they can't get their head around it, which is why a four-year-old can never be accused of lying. Now, they four-year-olds will say things that aren't true all the time, but they're not lying uh, because a lie a lie is an intentional deception. But four-year-olds aren't trying to do that. They just they don't they get something into their head, and to them it's real because they're thinking it. That's just how four-year-olds think. That's the psychology of it. Um, I noticed this with my kids recently when um, they were. They were telling me about a movie that they had watched, and uh, I asked them, I said, uh, oh, is it, is it, I was trying to f- figure out what movie they're talking about, and I said, was it a cartoon, or was it, were, were they real people? And my kids, they didn't understand what I meant. Like, they, they, to distinguish between cartoons and real, they don't really do that. The, to them, it's all real, right? Because they're watching it, it must be real. Um, that's how kids think. And that's why it's so uh, a situation like this is is so dangerous. I mean, this family, uh, although they thank God were you know ultimately vindicated, um, if the DA in that case had not exercised any prudence, then you know Adam Lowther could be in prison right now based on whatever the kid, whatever the the daughter said, and and it sounds like she may have just said something relatively innocuous, which then was, was the, the teacher latched onto. And then they started interviewing her and they, they coaxed her into saying things that didn't happen. They just, they led her into creating this whole fanciful fake scenario. Um, you know, I, when I wrote about this on Friday, I was reading some of the comments under the, uh, under the, I do read my comments sometimes. And there were a lot of interesting comments. People, people that had you know experience with um, child protective services and were talking about their own experiences, which were horrifying. Um, but then I, you know, I also saw a few people that said, "Well, who I assume are not parents," and I said, "Ah, no, kids would never make something like that up. I mean, if you're worried about a kid making something up, that clearly means that you're a, you're an abuser." Well, these are these are obviously not parents. I mean, if you if you uh, actually have young kids and have dealt with young kids. You, you understand how they operate. Um, and uh, that kids will, you know, they just get something into their head. And it, it could be because they, they heard something from a friend or they saw it on TV. Or, I mean, whatever. And they, they, they just, they get it into their head and they say something and then it just snowballs from there. But it, we're, and we're only discussing situations right now where a child innocently tells a story Um uh, or misinterprets something, or, or 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 tries to talk about something that really happened, but phrases it in a way that sounds, you know, um, that sounds it makes it sound like something it isn't. But there are also situations where a vindictive person, another adult, can make an accusation that is knowingly false. Um, I got an email from someone talking about their own experience. They didn't want me to read the email, uh, you know, verbatim on the air, but. Basically, their situation, and I've heard situations like this many times, where a neighbor who didn't like them called Child Protective Services and uh, said that they witnessed the person next door abusing their child, and it was totally made up. It was it was uh, 
a completely a complete lie. Um, and that's going to be even harder to get yourself out of because in that case, you have an adult who is knowingly lying and manipulating the system against you, which is really easy to do. It's, um, it's just uh, terrible. All right, one other thing I wanted to... Oh, yeah, I, I wanted to also talk about this um, because this is, this is interesting to me. President Trump touched off a, a controversy. Shocking to hear, I know, that President Trump started a controversy. But he did when he described on Friday um, Robert E. Lee as a great general, which I feel like we've done this controversy already. Didn't we? I feel like we did this like a year ago, but we're doing it again. Um, he, he said this while defending his previous comments about the protests in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, sort of as an aside, while he was addressing that issue, he called Robert E. Lee a great general. And um, this sent the left into hysterics, as per usual, with them accusing Trump of being a racist and a neo-Confederate and so on, slavery apologist and so on and so forth. Now, I caught a little piece of the ricochet from this controversy myself because, well, first of all, you have to understand that I was, I was when this was going on on Friday, I was flying back from, from a speech in Texas. And when I fly, I get bored. And so when I... So when I'm, that's, that's when I just start tweeting to pass the time. And it, it just so happened that this whole hullabaloo was happening while I was flying. And, I, you know, I'm interested in Civil War history. So, um, and I'm actually reading Shelby Foote's three-volume uh, work on the, on the Civil War right now, which is great, by the way. So I decided to jump into the fray to pass the time. And, uh, and you know, I said that I, I agree with President Trump that Robert E. Lee was a great general. And then I provided my own personal ranking of the best Civil War generals, which my, my list would go Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, uh, Grant, Sherman, and, and then Forrest. Probably you could put Longstreet at number five, you know, uh, Sheridan you could make an argument for. Anyway, the point is, I also started getting backlash from the blue checkmark brigade on Twitter because I ranked three Confederate generals among the top five uh, Civil War generals. And this is, this is offensive now, apparently. So let's, let's, let's get into this a bit. First of all, it is absolutely undeniable that Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Longstreet and Forrest and a number of other Confederates were great generals. I mean, that is, that is, that is anyone who has studied the subject will arrive at that conclusion. That is an uncontroversial, or at least it should be an uncontroversial thing to say. It's not a statement about their ethics or their morals or anything else. We'll get to that part of it in a minute. But calling someone a great general means that you're making a statement about their abilities as a general. That's all. Uh, it, it doesn't mean you agree with the cause they were fighting for. It doesn't mean you, you think they were swell guys. It's not a it's not an endorsement of their ethics or their more or their morality or anything like that. Rommel was a great general in World War II, and he was also a Nazi. Okay, the, the fact that he was a Nazi obviously bears heavily on any assessment of his moral quality, but it doesn't really bear at all on an assessment of his military prowess, which is when you're talking about great generals, that's what you're assessing. And in fact, it was there were people that were um, trying to challenge me and were saying, "Oh, 
So you, you include Confederates in a ranking of best, well, if you were ranking best World War II generals, would you include Nazis in that list? And the answer is yes, of course I would. There were some great generals who were Nazis. Uh, they weren't great morally or ethically. They weren't great in any sense, except for the fact that just in terms of their military abilities and their strategic brilliance, yes. That Again, anyone who has studied World War II will say the same thing. It is not a controversial thing to say, except among idiots. Uh, O.J. Simpson was a great football player, truly great. No question about it. He was also a murdering sociopath, is, I should say. Um, but if we were ranking you know, uh, the, the best football players of the last 40 years, O.J. Simpson is going to make the list. It, it, it's, it's not a statement of agreement with anything that he did in his life. It's just an assessment of his abilities as a football player. You know, I happen to think that Michael Jackson is a, is a uh, child molesting freak. But if we were talking about greatest pop stars of all time, it would be ridiculous to leave Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson would be number one on that list as a pop star. If we were talking about uh, the most the most morally upstanding people in history, Michael Jackson would definitely not be anywhere on the list. But um, but that has nothing to do with his abilities as a as a pop star. Yeah, the the South lost the war. Okay, everybody knows that. Uh, Robert E. Lee eventually surrendered, and this is often used as proof that well they they couldn't be great generals if they lost, which of course is stupid. I mean, again, going back to the football analogy, it's like saying that. Um, you, you couldn't possibly be a great quarterback if you ever lost a game, you know, or if you lost the Super Bowl. I mean, you know, the, the, there are other factors. Even if you have the greatest quarterback in the world on your team, uh, if you don't have a defense, if you don't have an offensive line, if you don't have receivers, you're not going to win very many games. There are other factors that go into winning besides just the quarterback. And it's the same thing with a war. You know, there are other factors that fact that, that go into it aside from your generals. Um, the the South, they were, in these generals, they were fighting an opponent who had them outmanned, outgunned, outnumbered, uh, who could outlast them in a war of attrition. These Southern generals were commanding basically shoeless farm boys who were wielding hunting rifles. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we have no choice but to recognize their skills in generalship. Because they were able to drag this thing on for four years and win many stunning battles against very long odds. Think about what just Stonewall Jackson for a minute. Um, think about what he did in the in the Valley Campaign alone. He marched his men six hundred miles uh, through the Shenandoah Valley Valley uh, over a month and a half, won five battles against a combined force that had him outnumbered two to one. Okay. Does that make him a great general? Uh, yeah, it does. The fact that he died after being shot by one of his own men at Chancellorsville, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't mean that he's not a great general. The fact that the South eventually lost, again, that doesn't mean that he's not a great general. Um, what struck me about the reaction to what I said and to Trump's comments is that apparently we've reached a point where we aren't even allowed to acknowledge that flawed men were good at anything. Like, we can't acknowledge them in any context. Uh, if they were flawed, we have to pretend that they were bad at everything. 
And that is, you can't do history that way. You can't study history that way. You can't learn from history that way. Uh, it, it, you just, you can't. We have to somehow pretend that there's nothing impressive at all about the Confederate victories at Bull Run and Second Manassas and Chancellorsville. And, I mean, we have to pretend that Robert E. Lee was just some hack, right? Some hack who almost brought the North to its knees uh, with his army of 17-year-old field hands. Uh, well, if that's the case, then this goes beyond the Civil War. We, we, we cannot then acknowledge the greatness of pretty much any great general that's ever existed, seeing as how none of them would pass muster by the standards of these uh, preening blowhards on the left. Even Grant, okay, General Grant was an anti-Semite who tried to evict all the Jews from his military district. He also, he also married into a slaveholding family. Um, so I guess he can't be great. Uh, and forget about Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, uh, Patton, I mean, any of these guys. I don't think any of them would, would hold up to, the, to modern standards for various different reasons. And so apparently none of them can be great now. It's absurd. But, you know, I'm actually understating, I think I'm underselling the point a little bit. Because, um, yes, any literate person, any person with a middle school education or better knows that Robert E. Lee was a great general. Uh, that is only a controversial statement among morons. But uh, I would go further than that. I would say that Robert E. Lee was a great man as well as a great general. And I know that you know, if people freak out when you call him a great general, only imagine what they would say when you call him a great man. Well, I, I'm going to call him a great man. I think he was a great man. Uh, and I really don't care how politically incorrect that might be. Was he flawed morally? Yes, um, but he was a flawed, great man, and he was far greater than the whiny, do-nothing critics who trash his name today, but have accomplished absolutely nothing in their own lives. Um, General Lee was opposed to slavery. He called it a moral evil. He never purchased a single slave, and the slaves that he inherited from his father-in-law, he eventually freed which is more than we can be, they can be said for numerous Union generals who actually own slaves themselves and purchase them themselves, um, generally was, was opposed to secession. He was offered the job of commanding the Northern Army, but he declined it because as a Virginian, he could not bring himself to march an army against his home and his sons. Um, now, that is, it's not like that's a simple choice. People act like it's, uh, well, clearly, it's, you know, he, sh he should have fought for the North. Well, would you take up arms against your own family? Would you take up arms against your own sons? Against your home? I, I, maybe you would, but is that really a, a simple choice? Is that really an easy, like, oh yeah, sure, definitely. Uh, can, can we not appreciate the, the moral complexity of the situation that Robert E. Lee faced, that a lot of these men faced? Um, can we not appreciate how, how, how difficult that, act, that would be? Robert E. Lee was widely respected on both sides. You, you can read the accounts of his surrender at Appomattox. Um, the siege is how highly regarded he was by the men who actually did the fighting. He was one of the greatest generals this country ever produced. Uh, he was a man of honor and dignity. 
And, you know, uh, General Grant recognized that. His soldiers recognized that. Lincoln recognized that. Yet we today, in modern times, we cast him aside as a racist and a traitor. It, you know, it took 150 years for us to decide that, oh, you know what, actually he was a total scumbag. Um, we can talk about the political causes of the Civil War, but it cannot be disputed that the men who actually fought did the fighting. They did so in their minds to protect their countries. You know, Southerners considered their states to be their countries. Now, we may, we may not understand that attitude nowadays, um, but that's the way they saw it back then. It's true that, you know, and, and you, can, you, can, you should be able to understand that because, you know, these days we identify ourselves as a country. We, we identify ourselves with the federal government, and I'm not sure that that's really a healthy thing to do anyway. But um, back in those days, you know, before the information age, before there were, you know, phones and internet and highways connecting everybody, um, especially in the South, an agrarian society, you lived off the land, you were tied to the land, you lived in your own town, you didn't, you didn't travel far from it um, uh, most of the time, and that was your life, you know, that was your country, and that's how they saw it. Um, now, it's true that one of the primary political causes of secession, and thus the Civil War, was slavery. That is undeniable. Um, but it's not true that the war was a war over slavery. You know, I think to phrase it that way would be an oversimplification, even though it is true that the South seceded politically um, in large part because of slavery, although not only because of slavery. Uh, but if you look at why the, the Northern soldiers were fighting, you, you look at the things that, that Lincoln said, um, they were fighting to preserve the Union, not, not to end slavery. And they were very clear about that. Lincoln said himself that if he could preserve the Union and keep slavery, he would. If he could preserve the Union by getting rid of slavery, he would do that too. Um, there's a reason why it took, you know, two years for the Emancipation Proclamation to be issued, because in the early going, uh, this was not a war to, to free the slaves. This was not a war over slavery. And Lincoln didn't want the, the, the soldiers on the ground to think that that's what they were doing, because he knew that he wasn't going to be able to recruit hundreds of thousands of, of soldiers if they thought they were going off to die to, to free the slaves. Um, now that's a worthy cause. That's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a good reason to go off and, and put yourself in harm's way. But the fact is, many Northerners were just as racist as the people in the South, and they weren't going to fight for that reason. So for the people on the ground, this was about preserving the Union. Um, for the people in the South, you know, the political leaders of the South, they wanted to, to secede in large part because of slavery. But for the men that were doing the fighting, they, they were not slave owners themselves, the vast majority. They had no interest in slavery. They considered themselves to be fighting to protect their homes from what they considered to be hostile invaders. Uh, ultimately, slavery stains everybody who fought for the South. There's no way around that. Uh, even if they weren't themselves fighting for slavery, even if they didn't own slaves, you know, it, it, still, um, it does. But the issue is far more complex than we, than we typically make it out to be. And when we look at it in context, with proper perspective, I think we can see why a man like Lee, a decent man, 
might choose to fight for the South. Because to him, it was a decision between fighting against his home or for it. That's the way that he saw it. And that's the way a lot of these people saw it. Um, I, and it shouldn't be difficult for us to make that concession. It do, again, it doesn't mean that we have to be neo-Confederates. It doesn't mean that we have to uh, support slavery. It doesn't mean that we have to you take the side of the South or whatever. It, it's, ju it's just about understanding the complexity of a, of a, of a, of a war that resulted in 600,000 people, people being killed. If, if you're looking for simple answers and simple, you know, sort of filters to look, to see it through, then you're doing the wrong thing. Um, all right. So yes, great. Certainly a great general. And, um, I would say great man as well, Robert E. Lee. All right, uh, how much time do we have? Okay, I'll get to, you know what, I'm going to, I guess we'll, uh, we'll skip emails today, and I'll, I'll do extra emails tomorrow, because there's one other thing that I had to, <laughs> I, can't, I can't let the show end before I show you this. Um, I have to show you two deeply troubling video clips, Okay. Uh, and they're related in a way that will soon become apparent. So first, this is from the NFL draft. It's a it's a shot of a QB um, finding out that he was drafted, and he's sitting with his family and his friends. And uh, then this happens. Watch this. Ouch! Uh, that 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 hurts. All right, now here's another video. This is from a girl on Twitter who I guess was surprising her friend at college or something, and I don't know, it doesn't matter. But um, all that matters is is this part. Watch this. Dear Lord, uh, and and here's the thing, I, I could I can really relate to the to the rejected people in both of those videos. I mean, when you when you get stood up like that on it, when you get left hanging, it, it's hard to recover. I remember in sixth grade. Okay, I still remember this. I have not recovered from it. Uh, in sixth grade, I was I was walking down the hallway of my school, and somebody who I thought was a friend of mine noticed me coming down the hallway or so I thought and uh and he went hey what's up and he and he and he, and he went for the the high five and as I was walking towards him and I went for the high five only to realize at the last second that he was talking to someone behind me not to me and so I went for the high five but I, I got stood up and he went and it left me hanging so then so that's embarrassing enough but now in that split second where I was where you know I realized the, the error that I had made I started thinking, okay, how am I gonna, how am I gonna play this off? So I thought, okay, if I can play this off as if I was trying to high five someone behind him, then I can save face. But as I, you know, I was, I'm kind of, this is all happening in like a split second. So I missed the high five, and now I'm desperately looking for someone behind him to high five, like someone that I know who I can say, hey, what's up? But I didn't really know anyone behind him, so I, I, I just targeted this one random kid who I didn't really know that well. But, hey, what's up? And he also left me hanging, so I got. I got stood up on two high fives in a row. Um, 
it was an absolute catastrophe and I still have not recovered from it. And it may well have been the defining moment of my life. I, I think what, how might things have gone differently if I had landed that first high five or even the second one? Because when you miss two in a row, it's, you, you, you just can't. That, that's, that's uh, your life is over basically at that point. Um, I've been a walking husk of a man ever since that day. So I feel, I feel, I feel deeply uh, sorry for, and I, and I sympathize with the, the people in those videos. All right, we will leave it there. Um, thanks for watching, thanks for listening. Godspeed. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, a new white supremacist terror attack targets Jews in San Diego. The New York Times reveals its anti-Semitic bias and the media rush to defend Ilhan Omar. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show.